Welcome to the next in a series of Ask a Chair podcasts brought to you by SAEM Rams. We are here with Dr. Robert McNamara, the current chair of emergency medicine at the Temple University School of Medicine. Dr. McNamara is considered one of the founding fathers of emergency medicine and a respected leader in the field. Dr. McNamara, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. My pleasure. So the residents have picked out several questions for you, focusing on some of the aspects of your career that um, will be highlighted. Um, First of all, what would you say is the single biggest change that you've seen in the field of emergency medicine over the course of your career? Well, I, I don't, I think the thing that's really different these days is just the status of emergency medicine, how we've been elevated within the, in the house of medicine from a specialty that was once viewed as a problem now as a solution. The, uh, if you look around the country at leaders in various medical schools, various hospitals, a lot of them are now emergency physicians. You know, it used to be the emergency physician was sort of the, the phantom in and out of the ED <laughs> doing their shifts, didn't really play a role in the hospital. Uh, the ED was viewed as a problem area. Now we're, you know, we're deans, chief executive officers, people, you know, in high government rankings. Um, so it's really been, you know, we just made it as a specialty where we have clout, we have influence. Uh, and I think a lot of that has to do with just the quality of the people we were able to recruit into emergency medicine, the, you know, to get top students, they become top residents. And then we're at the you know, we're at the interface of so many different specialties. We see everything that happens in healthcare, and we can speak the language of the internists along with the orthopedists, and that makes us a valuable person to kind of oversee care. So it's a, it's been really great. Where we're, you know, we're pretty much big contributors beyond just the emergency department these days. Can you think of an example of something that happens in emergency medicine today that may have not happened earlier in our specialty because we've gained this level of respect that you've mentioned? Well, I mean, it's just we control our own services. I mean, what goes on now, it's not everywhere, of course, but in most places, the the care of the patient in the emergency department is ruled by the emergency medicine chair that faculty you know we tell people how they're taken care of and and back in the day other departments would dictate the care of patients there were Mm -hmm. certain patients that emergency medicine wouldn't even see um you know the private patient in the emergency department so it's really control of our own area it's you know what's become interesting is that uh how many people turn to us now um you know the cardiologists send us people who are having chest pain from their office the surgeon sends us people who are having abdominal pain. We're viewed as a, a valuable resource for our colleagues. Um, procedures. There used to be a big fight over procedures. No, you won't intubate that patient. Or I'm coming in to do that shoulder reduction. And now it's like, what? You couldn't get that shoulder? You guys always get that shoulder. So it's um, it's been a big change. And a lot of it is just, you know, we've established ourselves as uh, good clinicians, able to deliver a great service. And... You know, frankly, I think emergency physicians and good emergency staff is, you know, very valuable for other specialties. When you have, think think about being, you know, an orthopedist and internist working at night 
and you get a call at 2 a.m. about one of your patients, if you know and trust the doc on the other end of the phone, the emergency physician, it just makes your life so much mm-hmm. easier. And I, and I think that kind of ground-level care has made a difference, that we really have shown our value, and therefore our colleagues have learned to respect us. And, um, and with that respect, we get elevated to positions of power. Excellent. Thank you. Um, looking specifically at medical education, where do you think that medical education and emergency medicine is headed? Is there anything in particular that we as residents and medical students should be excited about or anything in particular that you think that we should be anxious about? Well, I mean, I think the, the whole progression of learning, if you look at, you know, foam, podcast, like you're doing right now, <laughs> um, rapid learning, Twitter, um, EM's leading the charge. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the blogs we have, your journal clubs, you know, it used to be if you didn't go to their journal club, you didn't know what happened. Now it's, you know, if you happen to miss it, you can, it'll be up on the website pretty soon. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that's, to me, it's exciting. I, you know, I think that whole concept of sitting in a classroom, which I just came from, and listening to an hour <laughs> lecture. And, you know, only getting like five minutes worth of education out of that. And we've really kind of moved beyond that. The, the learning environment, it, I, I can't take credit for it, but, you know, the younger faculty in my program, it's just awesome what they're doing. The, the whole multimedia, you know, looking at things, pre-learnings, uh, shorter. I mean, there's the, the Picha Kucha sessions, the six-minute ones where we have at the AAM meeting. You get six minutes to give your your lecture, six Mm -hmm. slides, bang, what are the points? Um, I think that stuff is really, really great. Now, the the things I'm anxious about um, is sort of getting blinded by technology and and things. And and really, like, it's one of the, you know, I'm older practitioner, you know, really didn't even have access to CAT scans when I started, you know, they were just coming out and it was, you had to pay ransom to get your patient in the one. <laughs> but I'll see cases, you know, I'll have a student or a first year resident present a case to me and it's, you know, right to, let's just, we need a CAT scan of the abdominal pain. And we're missing a lot of the key elements of uh, sort of the basic, you know, you talk about tackling and blocking, the, the basic approach to the patient, mostly the history taking. I see um, people skipping over that. And it really, it's, uh, it's problematic. And then, you know, it, th- then there's a test done and, you know, the, there's a diacrimate out there, the vomit, the victim of medical imaging technology. <laughs> if we had taken a careful history, it's clearly this is appendicitis. Oh, but the CAT scan was negative. But, you know, you have that perfect history. The patient gets sent home, and they come back two days later with a perf, not recognizing the limits of technology. So I still think fundamentally, I mean, we're going to use technology. It's, it's important. It's key. And obviously, uh, it's made a lot of great advances. But we still need to focus on taking that orderly history, listening to what the patient's telling us, the timing of symptoms, the progression mm-hmm. of things, just the simple, and you know, and somewhat to the physical exam as well. Um, I'm amazed that people still doing rebound tenderness. Like 
that may not be as sexy as the latest journal article, but it's been disproven. So we still have students who come to us that are testing for rebound and the literature's. So this is sort of the basic history and physical type stuff. I think we clearly, to me, if you don't know what's going on with the patient, you know how like I'll talk two or three things uh, after taking the history, even before you lay your hands on them, you've you got a good chance you're going to miss the boat. I really think that um, people need to step back and listen to the patient, get a good history. It's the biggest concern I have with the with the younger docs to come through and and it obviously takes time to, to work through that in the educational environment. And it's easy to say, oh, okay, so we'll just get the CAT scan. But what if the CAT scan is negative? And, you know, we didn't take an accurate history. So I kind of worry about that. Like, we should still stick to the basics, the low tech, mm-hmm. you know, high touch. Then, you, you know, then you'll be able to evaluate what you're doing with your technology a little bit better once you have a clear, like, what are we looking for? I often ask that question around. Well, you got a CAT scan, but what is it that you're looking for? Well, they have abdominal pain. Yeah, but you should really know what you're looking for and what the probabilities are that this test is going to reveal that. So that's probably my greatest concern. Mm -hmm. Ultrasound, you know, we're doing ultrasounds on everybody. Yeah, but still, let's still talk to the patient. Mm -hmm. You mentioned um, the rapid proliferation of online resources, particularly FOMED. Do you have any pointers um, for residents or medical students on how to sift through those resources and make sure that they're getting good information? Well, I mean, I think, you know, there's obviously, if you just look at Twitter and somebody throws out an opinion and you don't know where they're coming from, you know, you can't, can't trust that. You should investigate mm-hmm. it further. There's obviously certain well-researched sources that are out there that legitimately we all kind of know about be it MRAP, those kind of things, that the, the people that really, they go through the literature, they clearly explain it, the academic life and emergency medicine, these are all kind of things that are pretty well vetted. So I just, you know, just caution, just don't take a tweet and <laughs> run with the tweet because it may be from another resident who was tweeting it, you mm-hmm. don't even know who, who started the chain. So it's like, I mean, we would always tell people, you know, when you read a, don't judge an article by an abstract, you know, judge a tweet by anything because mm-hmm. it's, it's so short you got to kind of back it up mm-hmm. so I, I think you have to be careful um but you know for the most part i think there's you know the the, the big key ones out there that people rely on are, are pretty well researched and um they always say you know don't be the first person to try something don't be the last one to stop using it <laughs> uh, so those rules still apply what do you think is the biggest challenge in delivering emergency medicine care today well, it depends on where you're at. Um, I mean, certainly just coming off this flu season, I mean, boarding is still, mm-hmm. this is like a recycle of, uh, you know, what's happening. I, you know, I say that, you know, we were told at a chairs meeting five years ago at my health system that uh, we're going to need to have a smaller hospital. And I, I, <laughs> I laughed, I scoffed, I said, by what stretch of the imagination? Well, that's what we heard in the meeting. They, they don't really. They were saying that we're going to do more and more on the outpatient side. It ignores the fact that our system was, you know, becoming the last port in a storm. Hospitals around us are closing, so we're getting their volume. The population's aging. There really isn't anywhere, at least where I work, to take care of people outside the hospital. There's not a primary care network. 
And now we're faced with the boarding crisis and with the flu season that was complicated. So boarding to me is, it, it compromises the educational environment because people in the waiting room, they're not being seen by the younger physicians, by the, mm-hmm. by the residents and whatnot. So I think boarding is a, is a key issue for in terms of the educational uh, aspects of care. And, and obviously we're working on these in, in multiple different areas. Emergency medicine care in the community hospitals, we have, let's you know, just admit the fact here, we're at the top of the burnout surveys. Um, multifactorial, what's going on as to you know, why people are burning out. To me, it's, it's, it's a lot of different things. Um, obviously, one of my passions has been um, the influence of corporations on emergency physicians. That's one of the reasons I got involved with the American Academy of Emergency Medicine. I feel that baseline, we have a very difficult specialty. We deal with all of society's problems. We do shift work. We work the weekends. We work the holidays. Um, it's a tough field. Mm-hmm. We see people die. We see young people die. And it, so it's, this is the kind of specialty where Docs have to work in an environment where they feel their efforts are valued and appreciated. That if you feel you're being taken advantage of in any job, you, you just can't do it right. You, you get angry. Um, and, and then in a difficult job like ours, that just compounds the issue. So it's, it's tough. I mean, metric-driven pressures from companies, pressures from hospital administrations when people work with these companies. The hospital administration has the company put pressure onto doctors. Um, so I think, you know, physician autonomy is a key issue. Uh, it's, it, it's tough out there. We're, we're getting a lot of corporate influence. People are looking to make money off of emergency physicians. So I've spent a lot of time as an academician being involved because that's where the grads go. I don't I want my grads going out into, into jobs. They can say, hey, I can stay here for 30 years and make a career out of this not shifting around or not having different employers come in. So it's a, that's a challenge for the specialty. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a lot of places don't have crowding. It's easy to get people up, but you know, we need to care for the physicians. The, the providers have to be at their mental best to, to practice this difficult specialty. And, and the burnout statistics scare me. My son just went into emergency medicine. He's a first year attending. Um, I really worry about that on a personal basis. Like, will he mm-hmm. get burned down himself? Um, so, a lot of problems out there. Not easy answers to, to all of them. Mm-hmm. Um, you alluded to your involvement in the AAEM, um, and you've been very involved in both the institutional level, obviously at Temple, as well as the national level with both AAEM and other professional organizations. What advice do you have for residents and medical students that are looking to break out onto the national scene to get involved outside of just their own institution? Well, to, to get involved at a national level, so for, first off, I think it's, it's, it's good because, it, again, one of the things is autonomy, lost control, feeling that you're just a cog in the wheel. When you do get involved in even within your own hospital, your own medical staff, or certainly with your state chapter, your national group, when you get involved there, you f- it helps you, you know, you're doing something about it. You feel a little bit better about your, your position within as being a physician. And it, it's not hard. 
it's if you look at most organizations, they're looking for involvement. I mean, it's a typical rule in organized medicine that you know only a small percentage of people actually do anything, and it's as simple as you know, show up, step up, follow up. I mean, you just go to a meeting, attend. I learned from a, a faculty member says you want to involve with the SAM, just sit in on their board meetings, and one or two, and they'll say, "Who are you?" I'm just interested, and they say, "Hey, you want to be on a committee?" And it's easy as that. Mm-hmm. And then when you, you get on a committee, then attend, participate, mm-hmm. read the stuff ahead of time, and follow up. Say, this is what I thought, and here's some ideas. The next thing you know, you're the chair of the committee. It's really not hard. <laughs> I mean, I, I've gone all the way up. I, and then you learn a lot of skills there that help you in your, within your own institution by being involved nationally. I spent time as a young physician trustee for three years on the board of the Pennsylvania Medical Society. I got to interface with all the other specialties, and I really learned a lot about how we were doing it wrong in emergency medicine in terms of running our specialty. I mean, these folks, the Pennsylvania Medical Society and the AMA, they, they're physicians for physicians. So I learned a lot of, uh, got a lot of knowledge, a lot of political skill out of that. And the same thing within the institution. It's, you know, showing up, agreeing to do things. You got to be careful. You know, some roles you take on aren't going to be as rewarding as others, sometimes you have to pay your dues on a not-so-great committee to, to move up. But emergency physicians can pretty much get themselves appointed to almost anything, and you can rise to be the chair if you want to continue that trajectory. Again, it's not for everybody. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously people have other things, but if you want to be involved, I find you're welcomed. I mean, people want you to participate because, uh, again, only a, a small percentage of us actually do that. So not difficult at all. Excellent. Um, you touched on this earlier, but this next question is from David Chu. He is a third-year medical student from the Oakland University William Beaumont School of Medicine. And he asked uh, what we can do to extend our careers as EM physicians and delay burnout or early retirement age, which you certainly touched on before. So we could do like 10 podcasts on that. <laughs> um, so one of my, the reason I, I became, one of the motivating factors for me to become a program director was I watched some activities that I didn't think promoted the wellness of my fellow residents. And I said, you know, that isn't right. We, you know, went to medical school, you know, we paid all that money. Uh, and now you put us on a match list and, you know, you're treating us like this? So I was a little bit of a rabble rouser. I would have some arguments with the program director, you know, how he would treat some of the other residents that were perceived as being a little weaker. So I, I wanted to be a program director to kind of encourage adult learning. This is the way it is. And then I, I, I've done a fair bit of research some of the, through SAM. You know, we, we did in-service surveys about abuse, harassment, substance use, mm-hmm. shift work. So there are some... Just for like quick hitters, I mean, shift work is number one. You have to do the research on shift work and how you're going to deal with that because that is the number one reason that people report that they want to leave the field or they have to leave their current position. So you have to take that on straight out. It's, there's plenty of good review articles on that. Um, so I would encourage everybody to, to really take that seriously. And then, it, you know, the other things are what are the other things that, that people complain about? The, the stress of the job, loss of autonomy, and some of this is getting into 
what is my work environment going to be like? How am I going to be treated as a physician? Am I going to be able to do what I believe is my primary job, which is to take the best care of the patients possible without interference from others, that I'm, I'm going to really be able to step up on my patient's behalf? So you need to look at the positions that you take and say, you know, what is the role of the doctor here? Am I just a money-making cog, or am I really part of the, you know, interval that I can step up, I can advocate on behalf of my patients? Um, and it's, it's a constant battle. There are, um, you have to pretty much every day, you know, fight for your own wellness. I, you know, there's just everybody, nobody can, can do it long term without having dips. You know, you see stuff, especially if you work like at a, a place like Temple, every day, the shootings and drug use and things that you just hope your kids never get involved with. And, and that's some of the perspective, too. I always, I say to myself so many times, I'm glad that's not my kid on the stretcher. You know, or you know, like heroin addicts, they're just so sad. You can get angry at them, but then you have to say to yourself, you know, that could be... You know, for that could have been me actually if I didn't have my two parents. So, you know, it's kind of like the, uh, you know, the serenity prayer. I actually have that on my office wall, believe it or not. You know, it's the serenity to accept the things I can't change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. I think that was written for emergency medicine before we even existed. <laughs> I really believe that you have to continually say to yourself, we have it way better than everybody who's in here as a patient. Mm. We, you look around as a doctor, sometimes you, you forget that. I mean, I always say, look, you know, you're making good money, you're, you're doing important work, you're helping people, and you know, your mom's proud of you, so what's so bad about <laughs> your life? I, I, but we have to do it, it's tough, and, and we see it. So it's, it's a constant battle. Um, you know, we have to pay attention to what I'm, what I'm trying to do is fight the external factors. You know, mm -hmm. with corporate control, you know, with, um, I'm, you know, currently serving as an expert of a doc who got fired for bogus reasons of not get, taking any money for it. I just really believe that as a leader in the specialty, you know, we have to try to create work environments that, that help. I mean, I view my job as a chair is defending the ability of my physicians to practice in the manner they see fit, to, to block all those mm -hmm. external things, these things they want us to do that just don't make sense. Um, that, uh, that's a key issue for me. I, when I was a residency director, I believed that my underlying f philosophy, I didn't believe it, it was mine, is that I don't want to affect anybody's family life by what happens to them in the residency. And, and I take the same thing for my faculty. I don't want to have, this, have them take home things that could disrupt their personal life because in the end of the day, that's the most important thing. I, I think your family should be first. I do a lot of work. I work a lot of hours. I've been in, involved in a lot of things, but I would hope, I know my family would tell you that they still know that they're number one, and that's a good philosophy to have. Mm -hmm. Put your family first. They're the ones that are going to be there at the end of the day, and, you know, jobs come and go, and committees coming up. Just that you, I have an underlying philosophy of life. And uh, like I said, we could do this for hours, but... Some of the key issues. Excellent. Any last piece of advice that you would leave for the medical students and the residents that are listening? So, I mean, some of it, you know, the theme was, was leadership. Um, I was asked this 
a couple different times, like, what do you what do you think of the key leadership points? And I can't say it's everywhere, but I think if you're going to be rise up to be a residency director, a chair, um, if you want to be a physician leader, I mean, I call it the general patent theory of leadership. You, you got to be at the front lines. You have to know what the troops are going through. So you, you know, you've got to be there. You got to be there working shifts. You got to. You can't have these administrative dictates that don't make any sense. You have to be viewed as somebody who, is, who knows what they're going through, that appreciates what these changes are going to affect. So I, I would say it's a trap to fall into taking a leadership position that removes you too much from the clinical front lines mm. and our specialty. Because we're heavily, even in the academic centers, I mean, we're judged by our clinical performance. And you can put out some nice research, but if a patient gets admitted to the wrong service or they have a bad outcome in ED, that's what, you know, people see. Mm-hmm. They, it's unfortunate part of the reality that, you know, we say we're in a fishbowl. People get to see our cases. You know, we admit to other services. I mean, we don't see that on our end. You know, usually patients come in de novo. But I think leadership from the front lines is important in emergency medicine because it's such a tough field that I uh, – I mean, I learned from my my mentor and first chair, Dave Wagner. You know, he he was clinical all through the way. He'd be up there working the weekend shifts. I worked nights until the policy that I actually set years ago. You know, at age sixty, we said no more nights. I actually put it to a vote of the faculty. You think I should stop working nights? And they said, Well, if you don't stop doing them, then we're not going to be able to stop doing them. And it's a wellness thing. So I stopped. Um, but for you know, before that, I equally shared in the nights, the weekends, the holidays, and I think the faculty appreciate that kind of stuff. Again, it's that's a you know frontline leadership. I think is key for emergency medicine. Excellent. Thank you so much, Dr. McNamara, for joining us today. Um, I've learned from what you had to say, and I appreciate it. And I know the rest of our medical student resident listeners do as well. Okay. Thank you.